Well, Monopoly, it's a game of long history. I'm sure we've all had our share of marathon Monopoly games. Uh, just curious, how many have had exposure? Of course, it wouldn't have been you, but you had exposure to marathon uh, Monopoly game meltdowns, where people got a little bit too into the game. Uh, but you, you never got that into the game. There was a lady down, I believe, in New Mexico, and she was grandmother, 60 years old, and so she had her 10-year-old uh, grandson over at her house and uh, started a Monopoly game with a little 10-year-old boy and her boyfriend. And evidently, during the Monopoly game, the boyfriend started to cheat. Don't you hate it when people <laughs> cheat at Monopoly? Well, evidently, she did. She sent her little grandson up to bed when he was nice and comfy. She proceeded to stab the man. <laughs> yeah, here's her picture. <laughs> So be careful who you play Monopoly with, <laughs> particularly if you cheat. She's a little one, but evidently pretty feisty. <laughs> Monopoly, uh, it's a game about acquisition. It's about getting power and possessions. And when you really think about it, it's a game about stripping everyone else of their power and their possessions and making everybody that connects with you or comes your way pay a price. If they get near you, if they get on your property, they're going to pay a price. Now, acquisition uh, is probably the easiest way to look at the way people play this game of Monopoly. And, and just to let you know, I'm, I'm going to do a, a Monopoly player A, an A type, and a Monopoly player B type. Uh, the B type is probably going to get a little uncomfortable and maybe be a little more useful, but uh, Let's look at what I consider to be the, the great, greatest example of an A-type Monopoly player in life. How many are familiar with the actor named Nicolas Cage? You almost can't help but to be, correct? Nicolas Cage, uh, once at the zenith of his career, he was worth uh, $150 million. Forbes considered him one of the highest paid, if not the highest paid actor around. And... Uh, he had quite an appetite to buy things, and so here's kind of a little list. At one point, he bought a Tyrannosaurus skull for $267,000. He actually outbid Leonardo DiCaprio to get the thing. Turned out they had to sell it back because it was stolen or something. And of course, who doesn't have two albino king cobras? You've got to have some of those. You've got to have the right kind of pets. He owns two islands in the Bahamas, $7 million. Um, we go on. The Shah of Iran's Lamborghini. Some of you don't even know who the Shah of Iran is. Read your history. But $450,000. Exotic cars and motorcycles. Let me just tell you a little bit about this. Uh, but, 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 but a little too fast. A little, I know I said go fast, but a little too He has nine Rolls Royces, and he has one Ferrari Enro, which alone is worth $1 million. Uh, 50 cars about in total vintage cars, and he's got 30 motorcycles. Then yachts. Four luxury yachts. One costing, can you just say it with me? $20 million, one yacht. He bought what's supposed to be the most haunted place uh, on earth in New Orleans for $3.45 million. And of course, you've got to have some shrunken heads. Uh, you, you need authentic shrunken heads. Then he built his own pyramid tombstone. Don't quite understand that. Uh, had one of the first Superman comics, probably worth you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you've got to have a pet crocodile amongst your pets. And of course, to go with it, you've got to have a pet shark, which he has both, and an octopus. And I'll just throw that in. He has a private Gulfstream jet, $30 million for the jet. Uh, 15 estate homes around the world, 
One in Malibu worth 7.5 billion, another in Bel Air worth 15 million, uh, 7.5 million, I should have said. And of course, he's got castles, two European castles worth about $8 million. And then he's got a bunch of rare art, <laughs> 50 pieces or so of rare art, and then high end jewelry. And to give you an idea how high end the jewelry is, remember when he had the little uh, relationship with Elvis Presley's daughter? Uh, he gave her an engagement ring worth $67,000. Ladies, can I see, just see your hands with you that your engagement ring was worth $67,000? <laughs> so they got in an argument, and of course she did what every woman would do. She threw it into the water to be lost forever. And he got her another one. So he was a little bit into jewelry. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, the guy was worth $150 million, but boy, those were some pretty big price tag items. And some of you probably know around 2009, this guy went broke, the IRS went after him, he owed them about $14 million. He had to start selling off all his property and yachts and everything that he had as fast as he could. And of course, uh, he started making movies as fast as he can. Last year, he, I think he probably would be in the uh, Guinness Book of Records for this, he made 25 movies last year and they all went straight to DVD. That's got to be some kind of a record. But he's just like in the hole and he'll just take any job that he can get to try to work his way out. Now, before we start feeling too, too sad for him, he's still worth about $25 million. And although he had to sell all his uh, houses and things, he still lives in a condo in Las Vegas. Now, here's the interesting part of the story. What's with this guy? Why is he so driven to acquire things, to, to buy more than he has you know, in his personal assets? Well, the story is interesting. Uh, his name is not really Nicolas Cage. His name is Nicolas Cage. Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola, you know, of the Godfather fame, screenwriter, you know, producer, director, and lots of other movies. That was his uncle. And now he himself, Nicholas, grew up in a very middle-class home, but uncle, uncle Francis would come over periodically, and he was exposed to this extravagant lifestyle, and that's all he wanted to do from the time he was a kid. And it seems like, we're just guessing, you know, playing psychologist here, seems like somewhere along the line, he got it into his head that the way you keep score in life, the way you tell if you're succeeding, the way you tell if you're winning, the way you tell if you've got any significance or value is you've got to have things, lots of things, things that no one else has. And that's the proof that you're okay and you're doing well in life. And it seems that that's what's driven this guy. So here he is. He's Mr. Monopoly, A-type. Remember, we're going to talk about A-type Monopoly player and B-type. So A-type Monopoly player, and it's only fitting that we stop for a moment and think about, might I be an A-type Monopoly player? You say, well, I, I don't buy things like that, but could it be, could it be that some of us in this room, we're still, we're still kind of driven, what makes us feel like we're okay, what, well, the way we keep score in life, uh, the way we, we feel significant is that we, we live in the right house and we drive the right car and we can take the right kind of vacations. Is it possible that some of us, all things considered, we're about control and power and possessions? The game Monopoly, when you really think about it, is kind of a brutal game. The goal is to completely strip everybody else of everything, all their power, all their possessions. You take from them, you give nothing to them, and you end up with all the power and all the control over the entire board, everybody else you have control over. And that's the idea of the game. 
But type A monopoly player is trying to prove to themselves mostly that they're okay by acquiring certain possessions. You know what? You don't have to acquire a lot of possessions. It, it, it could be pretty simple things, but you're still playing the game, the monopoly game. And so it's really important for us to humbly say, man, could that be me? Could that, could that be a part of what's driving me, motivating me in life? Now, there's a, a different type of monopoly player. And this one I said is going to be a little more uncomfortable, but likely more relevant. And to introduce it, uh, I want to read some verses from Psalm chapter 10. Uh, King David writing about some of his experience, and here's how it starts. It says, in his arrogance, <clears throat> the wicked man hunts down the weak. Now, I'm going to pause here for a minute because we're going to go back, and instead of the arrogant and the wicked, I I'm going to suggest that there are people that are neither arrogant or wicked, but they are broken and they are fear-driven, but they do the same thing. Okay, for now, we're going to read this verse the way it is. In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the, what? Schemes. These people have lots of devices. Schemes he devises. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his, what? They just wear people out. They, they seize control of people. Anybody gets close to him is going to pay a price. They're going to seize control. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He covers his face and never sees. Now keep that up there for a minute. This is a person who, with arrogance and wicked intent, takes control of people, uses all kinds of devices and schemes, crushes them, brings them under his power, and says to himself, I don't even think God cares, so what's the difference? This is just the way the world works. You know, some people need to be on top. They probably rationalize it like that. But I talked about a different kind of a person. This is the one that's more, more likely to be familiar to some of us that we may even be in uh, relationships with or in our circle of influence. And that's the people that they're not arrogant. They're not wicked. No, far from it, frankly. They are broken people. They, they, are, they are sad people if you can see through the window into their soul. They're, they're people that are scared to death that they have no value, no worth, no significance. They've been wounded. They've been beaten down. They've been battered. And so they think the only way they can be safe, nothing will shake me. They're just trying to be safe, but they do it by controlling and taking control of everyone in their environment. They think to themselves, God has forgotten. They think, well, God doesn't blame me for doing this. He knows how scared I am. He knows how terrible I feel about myself, that I just feel worthless. So God, God doesn't blame me for this. They, they rarely, this is really important, people that are in this condition, again, not wicked, not arrogant, broken people, scared people, fear-driven people, people with very low self-esteem, um, they rarely know that they are doing this. Rarely do they understand that they are using schemes and mechanisms. Some, sometimes they're overly dramatic and they control people that way. Some, sometimes they're very explosive. Sometimes they cry very easily. They, they can punish people with silence. They can punish people by withdrawing affection and then giving it back. They, they use all kinds of mechanisms. Sometimes they are that problem person in the family that always has a problem. There's always something wrong. And so everybody's attention gets drawn into them and they control everybody. Sometimes it's the person with the addiction in the family and it just sucks the life out of everybody else and everybody comes under the control. Everybody's life revolves around this person. But the person, the person rarely recognizes it. And let me go further. If we 
try to explain this to the person, it is even rarer that they will admit to it or even believe it. In fact, the likelihood is they may even turn it around and say, no, in, in actuality, it's we that are the controlling ones. And they mean no harm. They're, they're not being evil. They, they, they just do not see it. So this is Monopoly Player B. Um, they still do the same thing, though. They still control everybody in their environment, albeit it's, it's a fear-driven thing. One of their techniques is something that uh, we became familiar with in the first Gulf War. Uh, you might remember the term shock and awe from the first Gulf War. There's a couple military strategists, Harlan Ullman and James Wade, and they started advocating a more focused approach to war. Shock and awe, also known as rapid dominance, is defined as a military doctrine based on the use of overwhelming power. These type B monopoly players use overwhelming power. They'll wear you down. Dominant battlefield awareness. They're always aware of what's going on. We're just kind of plodding through life maybe. Um, dominant maneuvers. They know when to turn on the tears and when to turn on the rage. They know when to, to shock people with unfiltered a stream of words to keep everybody kind of back on their heels. They feel safer that way. They're controlling all the time. Spectacular displays of force. They might threaten. They might be explosive. Um, they paralyze the enemy's perception of the battlefield and destroy its will to fight. They finally bring us to a place where we've given up. Uh, we just go along with the program because we know they will never, ever give up. The goal is to render your opponent impotent by using superior technology, precision engagement, and information dominance. These people use information dominance. So there's a type A monopoly player who's trying to prove to himself mostly that he's got some value and worth by what he owns, what he controls, what kind of prestige. But it's the type B controller monopoly player because that's the idea of monopoly. Monopoly is to take from everybody, bring everybody under your dominance, under your control, and there's a lot of folks, and I just want to say, these are not people to be hated. Uh, these are broken people. These are people that are scared, but it's the same result. They, they bring about this, uh, this collapse and control of others in the life. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 21, it says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Some of these monopoly players are think they're a little faster than everyone else, a little more clever. They always position everyone the way they want them. Proverbs 28, 26, he who trusts in himself, though, is a what? I mean, ultimately, ultimately, these uh, folks are their own worst enemies. Now, a guy named John Ortberg, uh, a really good speaker, good Christian writer, pastor, he tells a story about his grandmother, who actually was like a, uh, a monopoly hustler almost, and he said that she raised six kids and then her husband died and moved in with John. And uh, from the time he was a little boy, she lived in the house with them and often would play Monopoly with him. That was his introduction to Monopoly. And he said as a little kid, when he played Monopoly, he would just kind of save all the money, you know, thinking that that's the way you go. And of course, grandma would just go around and buy everything up on the board and then she would trounce him thoroughly. And he said at the end of the game, every time she would beat him, she would say, someday, John, you'll learn to play this game. And he said that was really like the dagger, you know, after you've just been beaten. He said, well, as it, as it happened, one summer, uh, he and one of his buddies, they played a lot of Monopoly. You ever had one of those summers where, for whatever reason, you're just indoors a lot, you're playing a lot of Monopoly? And he said, I learned, like grandmother said, I learned how to play the game. And he said, and I couldn't wait. 
So he says, the day came, he and grandma sat down again to play the game. And he says, and I started buying everything I could on that board. He says, I swept around there. I controlled everything. I took her last dollar and broke her down to a humble shovel, you know. He said, and I loved it. I loved it. You know, so he said, then he realized this is, his, this is his loving grandmother. And he's delighting in destroying her, he said. At the end of the game, he felt really proud. He had accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. And he said, you know, I wanted to just bronze the game and, and preserve it for a while. And he said, and then she hit me with this phrase. She said, you know, Johnny, it all goes back in the box. <laughs> and then she got serious with him. She said, you know, the stuff's here before you and I get here. And the stuff will be here after you and I go. The players change, but the stuff comes and the stuff goes and the players come and go. But it all goes back in the box. She was actually trying to teach him a lesson and maybe a little bitter that she had been beaten. But let's be <laughs> honest. <laughs> so Jesus said these words in Mark 8.36. He said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world? You know, even if you could possess and control everything and yet forfeit his soul and it's an absolute there. You can't gain control over people, persons, places, and things, unless you're paying a very dear price yourself. And the price is your soul. You're, you're, you're losing your authenticity. You're losing your capacity to love. You're losing your capacity to feel. You become an acquisition machine, a control machine. You think you're being safe. You think you're elevating your sense of value and self-worth, but you're actually making it worse. You're getting scared or you're feeling more worthless. You're, you're losing your identity. Or what can a man give in exchange for souls? Nothing's worth it. Nothing's worth it. This life, we have a little bit of time to develop our souls, to become who God always purposed for us to become and to do what he meant us to do. But if we waste it playing Monopoly, um, the loss is a great one. And, and, and this, this has to do with the loss of our soul in everyday life. So I've given you an idea of what Monopoly players A and Monopoly players B look like. I paused you at A, but I didn't pause you at B. And B is the much more uncomfortable one. B is the much more likely one that you and I may be or be around. So why don't we just ask that question? Could it be that I'm one of these controllers and I, I have multiple tactics and schemes and, I, and I'm, I'm doing it kind of unconsciously, but the truth be told, I control everyone in my environment. And I don't think I want to do that anymore. It could be that you're at the spot where you can see it and you don't want to be that person. Second, more likelihood, what if you are in a relationship, in a circle of influence with someone or someones that are the controlling monopoly player? What do you, what do, you do about it? How do you deal with it? Because they're relentless, I'm telling you. They're, they will never give up. They don't know how to give up. They're too scared in many cases. So wh what do you do if you're in that situation? But the first question is, are, are perhaps we like that? Are, are we the controlling monopoly player? All right, if we are, here's what Jesus says we can do about it. And it's, it's kind of simple, but yet hard. Simple to understand extraordinarily hard to do if, in fact, we're this kind of a controlling type B monopoly player. All right, here's what Jesus says. 
His disciples were in an argument about which of them was the greatest, you know, which was going to be the leader. And so he calls them for a little corrective conversation. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them or have control over them. And those in high positions use their authority or control once again over them. It must not be this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to be, what is the word? Nothing wrong with wanting to be great if you understand what greatness is. Whoever wants to be great, says Jesus, you must, or, or, or who wants to be great among you must be your, and what is the word? Now, we tend to read this this way. Okay, if, if I want to earn greatness status in Jesus' eyes, I've got to start serving people. I gotta, that's not really what he's saying. He's saying that greatness is displayed when an individual has the capacity, the space in their heart, the space in their soul where they care about other people. And when they get around other people, they're asking a different set of questions. Not what are you going to do for me? Not are you making me happy? What, what profit can I give from you? No, no, no. They have the space in their soul. They don't need anything from the other person. They meet people and they say, how can I help you? How can I serve you? How, how can I be a blessing to you? Jesus is saying, you want to know what greatness is? Greatness, great people are the ones that have that space, that capacity to give and love and serve. Most of us go through seasons in life, at least, where we're so consumed with our own junk, right? We're just so consumed with our own junk. We, we just have too many doggone voices going around in our head. We have no capacity to give or to serve somebody else. We're, we're, we're trying to deal with our own pain. We're trying to deal with our own problems. Jesus is saying the great person is the person that's developed this capacity to love and to give. And they look at people. They have, they have, first of all, they have the ability to look at people. When we're dealing or consumed with our own junk, we can't even see other people. All we, all we see is ourselves and hear the voice in our own head. Great people have come to the place of healing where they have space and capacity to see others and to say, okay, how can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I be a blessing? I don't want anything from you. I don't need anything from you. I don't. I just want to help. I want to serve. Jesus says, that is greatness. Now, we know this in everyday common sense life. You've heard me use this example before. Uh, little children don't serve their parents. Parents serve their little children. The greater, the ones with the capacity, they show their greater by serving not by being served. It, Jesus flips it all upside down. Now, the problem with these type B controllers is they're so scared, and they feel like if, if they start to serve somebody, they're going to lose even more uh, security, and they'll be maybe even less, uh, have a less sense of self and dignity and so forth. But the answer the answer is to trust Christ and to, and to start doing it. So if, if you are a type A or a type B monopoly player, Jesus' answer is, is start getting close enough to God to get your own soul sufficiently healed, not perfectly, but sufficiently, so that you can first see people so that you can start really thinking and caring and helping and serving them as opposed to consuming, getting, taking from them. In monopoly, once you win, everybody that gets close to you has to pay a price. You have them under your control. This is just the opposite. Now, I want to deal with those who may be in circles of influence where there is a type B 
uh, monopoly controller in your life. W what do you do? How do you handle these people once, once uh, you realize in particular that they are about controlling you and everyone else around you? How do you live with them? How do you deal with them? How, how do you work with them? You know, what, what do you do? David in Psalm 37 gives some uh, extraordinary insight into how to handle these kind of situations. David says, first of all, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. We've got to take all the frustration and confusion and maybe hurt and anger, maybe borderline bitterness that we might be feeling if we have one of these controllers in our life. Get before the Lord and do not fret. Don't let this thing get you scared. Don't let it get you worried. Don't let it overwhelm you. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways. In other words, the controller, the monopoly player, may be succeeding in controlling you. He says, don't, don't fret. Don't worry about it. When they carry out their wicked schemes. Now, they may not feel they're wicked. They're just trying to keep themselves safe. And then he says, refrain from what? You see, that's our tendency. We tend to respond emotionally. When the person is maneuvering us and controlling us and pushing us and shoving us and doing all, you know, just keeping us in a state of chaos almost to, to keep us off balance, so to speak, we finally usually get angry. We want to respond emotionally. He says, refrain from anger and turn from wrath. It's not like don't, don't blow up and get back. Do not fret. In other words, don't get, don't get worried. It only leads to what? Evil. So you get a retaliatory cycle. You know, this person's pushing, shoving me, trying to control me. I'm going to fight back. That, that's the typical thing we do. But what he says to do, he says, trust in the Lord. Okay, so I'm just going to trust in the care of my heart and soul to the Lord. But then that last little phrase, we might read right over it and not think it's important. What does it say? Trust in the Lord and what? Do good. Now, this is important. He's saying don't respond emotionally. That's what we tend to do. These people that are controlling us, they tend to get our emotions into a heightened state, and we respond emotionally. He's saying, don't. Trust the Lord. Reach out to God, but then do good. Be principle-driven in your interaction with these controlling people. Do not be emotion-driven. This is possible. It might sound impossible. It might feel impossible, but it's possible. Does this mean, Randy, that then these people are going to kind of wake up and they'll stop being so controlling? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It, it just means that your soul will stay intact. And let me tell you something, and more important, you might be God's channel of healing grace to one of these people because these people, they're not evil. They're, they're scared, they're broken, and that's why they're trying to control everybody. They, they feel they're unlovable at some level. And so you might, if you can get your own soul intact, you might just be a channel of healing to them. Let me, let me share something with you from a guy named John Lennox. Uh, he's an Oxford scholar, and he wrote a, a book called Against the Flow. And uh, in the book, he tells about a man that he met, a Christian man, follower of Christ, that uh, lived in Russia. And he explains that this man, and I know this is going to sound just crazy to you and I, this man, uh, this during the Soviet era, th this man was arrested because he was teaching his children the Bible. Now, I'm not going to ask you how many of you want your children to know the Bible or, or you want to teach your children. I'm just going to assume you do. But for teaching his children the Bible, he was arrested, sent to a Siberian labor camp, a gulag, uh, one of these unbelievably brutal places just 
for teaching his kids the Bible. Now, I want to read you the conversation that actually went on uh, between John Lennox and this man. It said, he described to me he had seen, th seen things that no man should ever see. I listened, thinking how little I really knew about life and wondering, how would I have fared under this circumstance? As if he had read my thoughts, he suddenly said, you couldn't cope with that, could you? Embarrassed, I stumbled out something like, no, I'm sure you're right. He then grinned and said, nor could I. I was a man who fainted at the sight of my own blood, let alone that of others. But what I discovered in the camp was this. God does not, got to get this, God does not help us face theoretical situations, but real ones. Not, not wondering how we'll fare in a situation in the future, but, but when it happens, real ones. He goes on, like you, I couldn't imagine how one could cope in the gulag. But once there, I found that God met me. Exactly as Jesus had promised his disciples when he was preparing them for victimization and persecution. If you've got a monopoly controller in your life, you're probably going to experience some victimization and persecution. And a lot of times it isn't going to be deserved. It's not going to make any sense whatsoever. And then Lennox adds these words. And these are the really important ones. When God calls us to do something, what? Difficult. He gives us the strength when we need it, not what? Not before we need it. You say, Randy, what, what does that got to do with anything? Here's the deal. If you're in one of these circles of influence with one of these type B controlling monopoly players, it may seem just unbearable. And you may be thinking, I can't endure this for another day, much less a week, a month, a year, or something like that. And what I'm saying is don't think that way. Don't think about how much you can bear. Think about how much you're willing to trust God and be an agent of healing to that person. And God will give you the strength in the moment. And, and I'm going to tell you, he'll just give you, he's not going to give you an overabundance. He'll gonna, he's going to give you just enough strength to get you through that day, that incident. And it's not going to feel good. It's not going to feel real good at all. But if you trust him, what's going to happen is this. Your, your resilience is going to be built up and your capacity to love is going to be increased, and you just might, you just might in time be an agent of God's healing to this other person who is not your enemy, but who is an enemy mostly to themselves. So you got to remember that. He'll give you the strength you need when you're in the mix and, and not before, and he doesn't give you enough to give you confidence that you're going to be able to endure it the next day. So... Uh, Listen to this verse from Proverbs 21, 21. It says, the, the one who pursues righteousness. Notice, this is principle-driven living, not emotional-driven living. Uh, the one who pursues righteousness and love finds life, bounty, and the last word, honor. So we, we've got to, if we're in these situations, we've got to stay principle-driven. We've got to say, you know, what is right in your sight, God? What is the right thing, the good thing to do? No matter how this person is treating me, what is the right thing to do? That's what I'm going to let govern me, not my emotions. And then this last section of Scripture, it's mostly just to kind of give you some hope and confidence and, and uh, uh, affirmation if you happen to be in one of these situations. The Lord says, because he is devoted to me. If you're devoted to Christ, and you know it, and he knows it. The Lord says, because he is devoted to me, I will, what does it say? Deliver him. I will protect him. Why? Why will you protect him, Lord? Because he is, what does it say? Loyal to me. 
When he calls out to me, I will what? Answer him. I will be with him when he is in what? Means we might be in some trouble. And I will do what? Rescue him. You don't need to be rescued unless you're in, in difficulty. <laughs> I will rescue him and bring him what? Every human being aches for honor. And Monopoly players often try to achieve honor by acquisition, power, control, piling up fancy things. But the only honor that will ever satisfy your soul or my soul is the honor that comes from God. What you are hungry for is affirmation from the outside, but it's affirmation from somebody that you know is absolutely authoritative. You want affirmation from the best, brightest individual in the universe, and that's God. You want to hear, deep in your soul, you want to hear your creator say to you one day, you did it. You did it. Well done, my child. Well done, good and faithful servant. Every single human aches to hear those words. We try to find it in lots of other things, but we want an honor that comes only from our creator. And here's a promise that we stay loyal to God Stay faithful to him. We'll get that. I'm going to close with a, uh, a quote and a little bit of a background on it from a guy named David Green. He wrote a book called Give It All Away. And uh, he plays right into the monopoly uh, you know, idea that we're working with. He says, some people act like life is an oversized game of monopoly where the, where the, way, excuse me, where the way to win is to accumulate as many properties as you can either by purchasing outright or by clever trading with your opponents, then you keep adding houses, hotels, extracting rents from others until you eventually drive them into bankruptcy. You strip them of power and you take control. You sit back, rub your hands together and start counting your stacks of cash. He goes on, no, life is more like Uno or Crazy Eights, where the point is to run out of cards first. You want to deploy every card you have, knowing that each card left in your hand at the end counts against you. Don't get stuck at the end of time, or don't get stuck at the time of your, what is the word? Funeral with leftover cards. What, what is he saying? The Monopoly player is trying to accumulate possessions and power, control over people. Jesus said, you want to be great? You got to serve what this guy is saying is leave it all on the field. Give it all away. Take your time, take your sacrifices, take, take your experiences, take your spiritual gifts, take your talents, take your finances. Make sure you are investing it, investing it in others wisely, carefully, but sacrificially. Don't, don't end up at life with a whole bunch of stuff that you've held to yourself. Maybe you've controlled everything and everyone, but you're the poorest person of all, and you'll find that out at life's end. The richest person is the person that's taken their time and their talents and their experiences and their gifts, and they've offered it all up to God and in service to others. David Green is saying, leave it all on the field. Make sure you end life with nothing left. Nothing left in the tank. Give it all while you still can. So in closing this message, I kind of summarized it like this. Takers always lose. They always do. Takers and controllers always lose. Even when it looks like they're winning, they're losing their soul. They're aching inside for something they can't gain by controlling others. Takers always lose, but givers always win. 
No matter how it looks now, Jesus has shown it's the givers that have a future. Jesus himself, we're going to celebrate communion in just a minute. And communion is this celebration that our God, the Almighty One, is the greatest giver in the universe. He is a sacrificial giver. He gave his life on the cross to prove to human beings, broken, fallen human beings, that we had nothing to fear from him and that we can return to him in complete trust. He gave, he gave it all and urges us to follow that example. So let's real quick just look at three things. Number one, could it be that God brought you here this morning to let you consider that you've been a type A monopoly player? You're trying to, you know, collect enough prestigious symbols around yourself to feel good about yourself and thinking that's the way you keep score in life. And maybe God's brought you here today to say, there's something better than that. Don't let that drive the rest of your life. And then the really uncomfortable one. Maybe you're here this morning and you have a notion, I think, I think maybe I am a type B controller, monopoly player. And I think in various ways, I have been controlling everybody around me and I don't want to be that person. I don't, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I don't know how I'm going to learn to feel safe so that I can give and be vulnerable and open, but, but I, I want to do that. Maybe that's what you tell the Lord today and you start working your way through this. Um, for each of us, I think, there's, there's an aspect of this that would be wise for us to think about and uh, ask the Lord to help us see it in his light. So let's, let's pray and do that. Uh, Father, you know us. It's so hard for us to see ourselves. And uh, we pray that if, if there's things this morning you want us to see, you want us to deal with, you want us to have courage to come close to you to deal with, help us to do that. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.